to a new edition of the Canadian Crew Podcast. I'm Jorge Castillo. Today we'll talk with Michael Sparaga, director of the documentary The Missing Ingredient, What's the Recipe for Success? Canadian documentaries are getting consistently good, no matter the scope. Films like This Changes Everything, Hurt, A Name for the Roses, couldn't possibly be more disparate. Yet, the honesty of their approach makes them more sympathetic and digestible. The missing ingredient focuses on restaurateur Charles Devine, owner of the Manhattan eatery Pescatore. Devine wants to turn his 21-year-old bistro into a must-visit destination in his pursuit for that elusive element that may turn his restaurant into a runaway success, the entrepreneur crosses paths with Gino's, a veritable institution for New York foodies. The Missing Ingredient is an entertaining film that transcends the food documentary subgenre. Through the Vince Odyssey, we get a behavioral picture of what turns clients into regulars. It's rarely just the food. Could be the wallpaper. I talked to Michael Sparga about this and how to shape a story with the potential of a spiral out of control. Here's Michael. Michael Sparga, welcome to the Canadian Crew Podcast. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. Excellent. So if you would like to introduce your film for our listeners. Sure. It's a documentary called The Missing Ingredient. What is the recipe for success? And it's a film about two New York City restaurants that is well, it's really about a, a bigger idea. What is the recipe for success? What, what does it take for a restaurant to go from being a local eatery to being one of those restaurants that everybody has heard of? You know, like uh, Russian Tea Room, uh, Elaine's, Four Seasons. You know, they started off being restaurants and then became something more special. And this story I follow is a, a midtown restaurateur in New York who has a 20-year-old restaurant that's suffering a little bit financially and needs to uh, save the restaurant and also his, he lives above the restaurant so it's really about saving his family home mm -hmm. and also he's an, an artist and I think he just wants to put his restaurant on the cultural map. It, it, it does fine as a local eatery but it's not really well known outside its neighborhood mm -hmm. and he decides to copy or use, borrow, borrow the wallpaper of another New York restaurant that had recently closed, but it was very, very famous and very famous for the wallpaper. Mm -hmm. And it's what's so funny is I know it's a movie about wallpaper and I try, I try to lead people away from that. I try not, when I'm talking about it, I say it's really about more than that, but, but it really isn't, you know, it really is about two restaurants connected by wallpaper. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that unique story is what I, attracted me to it but you know it's like the whole idea watching paint dry watching wallpaper go up we do have wallpaper going up but it's a really big moment right. <laughs> you know well, the, the wallpaper is not a plot point until like half hour into the yes film. exactly it's it's about setting up who Charles Devine the owner of Pescatori mm -hmm. is letting you know the history of Gino's and why it was special to the people who went there and then we get into mm -hmm. the renovation going on and then his choice to put up this wallpaper. So you, you care about Charles, you see he's a good father, you see he's good with his clients, his guests at the restaurant, they really like him, you see he's in trouble. Um, and on the Gino side, you just learn to love the personalities. Mm -hmm. You really just 
who the people were there, the that that went there for. I mean, 65 years. It was open for 65 years. Generations. They are very, they are very big personalities. The people involved with dinner. <laughs> yeah, they are. Uh, and they're fun. I mean, oh, you had to be introduced to them, sort of layer by layer. The, you had to start with the the regular who went there for 10 years, mm -hmm. and then you had you moved to the people who were there for 20 years, 30, 40. Um, people went there for four generations, mm -hmm. you know, and then you know you get to the owners, and it was just a real interesting way to, to learn and uncover the history of a, a restaurant, how people felt about it, and why the wallpaper was so special to them. You know, and, that, and that's that big question is, what is it we love about our favorite restaurants? It normally is something sort of kitschy, you know? It normally is, uh, is the decor is, is what it is, sort of. Okay, um, so it's interesting. Uh, how do you come across this, uh, this idea? This idea was born out of a conversation with Charles. I actually knew. You knew him. I knew him, and uh, I knew when I lived in New York and when I moved back to Toronto, uh, we became we became we stayed friends. And he actually sent me an email of this little square of wallpaper up on the restaurant wall and said, "What do you think of the new wallpaper going up?" I actually don't even think I responded to him. I did, I just sort of thought. Okay, that looks familiar. I knew the zebras. I'd seen them before, I thought. And then he called me about two weeks later and he said, hey, my designer quit on me over the use of this wallpaper. And I thought, oh, the zebra thing? What? Uh, and so I looked it up. I Googled it. And right. I thought, oh, this is that wallpaper from the Royal Tenenbaums. It's that, that expanding. Yeah. <laughs> then I sort of saw, and I, I asked him, I was like, is it a good idea then? I mean, maybe she has a point. It might upset people. But he was set. He said, no, I really love this wallpaper and I'm putting it up and it's, you know, I've already ordered it. So I thought, well, when is it going up? And it's in two weeks. So I went across the street. I literally live across the street from my co-producer and he's my editor on all my films, Joel Roth. Mm -hmm. And I walked over and I said, hear me out. You know, Charles, I think I introduced you once, but he's doing this thing where he's putting up this wallpaper. Here's the wallpaper and, you know, it might upset people. Do you think there's a story? Right. And he's like, well, I think so. Perfect. We're leaving for New York next week. <laughs> I mean, it really, I just... I didn't have time to apply to anything. I just said, I'm going to self-finance mm -hmm. production. We're going to at least go and get shooting because if we don't go shoot this now, it's just going to go up and the story is going to not be anything. It, we have a chance to sort of find the story here. And so we just went to New York. We took the bus overnight Great. and just started shooting. Amazing. Yeah. I guess it's, uh, was it hard to score a narrative within the, with, because as you, as you mentioned it, you, 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 took the, you took the bus, you are there, mm -hmm. so now you have to find a narrative to tell the story. Even before leaving for New York, I wrote out what I thought the story would be, okay. because I saw him trying to um, become an institution mm -hmm. by using the decor of another well-known institution. And it immediately thought, what makes an institution? What do you think makes it? I mean, it was my very first interview, day one. I asked, uh, our, the, the first person interviewed, Paul Gumbiner, I said, what do you think makes an institution? And that was in every single interview mm -hmm. because that was what most fascinated me. I really didn't know. And I don't know if necessarily after making the film, I know because I would then be a restaurant consultant and not right. a filmmaker. I mean, it's, it's a whole lot of things coming together right. Not necessarily the best food on the planet, not necessarily the most friendly service on the planet, not necessarily the most clean, modern decor on the planet. I mean, there's so many things that can just be kind of left of center. 
and that's what will make you an institution. Right. You know, it, it's about tone. It's about how a restaurant establishes the feel, so when you walk through the door, it feels like something, mm -hmm. uh, and then maintains that over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think Charles hadn't necessarily established a as a new restaurateur, as a second generation owner, he he hadn't established his own tone yet and was looking to sort of do that in the face of a changing clientele. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of a hard thing to do. With the additional problem that the so-called missing ingredient is constantly changing. It's ch you Because it's, you, can, if you can even pinpoint what it, before you can pinpoint what it is, it may not even be that anymore. No, it's, it, and it's a fluke. I mean, it, it, look, it helped for Gino's that Frank Sinatra mm -hmm. went there, you know, regularly. And then it helped that the, the right person, the columnists of some of New York's paper, this is 1945, right. the day it opened, from the day it opened, a columnist mentioned it. And back then, Italian food was, I mean, it was ethnic food. It was, I mean, it wasn't roast beef, right. you know? It was like now going out for, uh, you know, Southern Ethiopian, not even just regular Ethiopian, you know? It's like, <laughs> the, it was as niche as you could, you, you could possibly be. So, yeah, it was one of those things where it was a, a new food in a new area. And Charles is in a new New York, yeah. you know, when, in the 2000s where there's all sorts of food from all over. And he's that old school uh, sort of Mediterranean Italian food. Um, trying to be old world in a new city didn't necessarily work. Absolutely. Did you get all the access that you want? When I started off making the movie and I heard of who went to Gino's, I had a vision of the film that would have all of the famous clientele in it. And I started off going after them. And what I realized is they weren't the regulars' regulars. Mm -hmm. They were people who went there were known for it. So, you know, Dustin Hoffman would go and he would go sometimes. Mm -hmm. But there were other people that went seven days a week, twice, <laughs> twice a day. And they were the other part of New York that weren't the mega celebrities, but were very well known music producers or, or jazz musicians like uh, John Pizzarelli who's in the film or you know just people who are those amazing New Yorkers and they became the more fascinating interviews mm -hmm. and I felt they sort of deserved the screen time so although I didn't necessarily get what I thought the movie would be star-laden mm -hmm. I got the right people that tell the story correctly there's a real estate agent who tells this beautiful story about and it, it breaks his heart that it's closed, that he misses Gino's every day and he has tears in his eyes. Well, why would I bump him for, for somebody else for a face? I, it just didn't make sense. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, were you ever concerned that uh, you had uh, many talking heads and not footage? Because you, you actually got a fairly good balance here. But uh, I, um, most documentaries concern is that they, they may just be a parade of talking heads. Talking had scared us tremendously. We were thankful that Charles gave us access to film in the restaurant while it was open, so we knew we would have some footage of being in a restaurant uh, and behind the scenes, and you know, Charles gave us access to his family, which is important, so you see who he is. And, but when it came to Gino's, I mean, we really just had talking. There wasn't Gino's. Gino's wasn't around for us to film anymore. Mm -hmm. The amount of research and time spent digging to get those photographs mm -hmm. of Geno's, some of them were found abandoned in boxes, in garages, in gym bags, in these, like, ah, oh, we've got this, we've got that. Uh, on the, 
the way we're able to bring Genos to life is really a tribute to our VFX guy, Mike Sevigny. He just, he took these old three by five black and white photos from 1945, cut out all the characters and let us go through in a three-dimensional world while we had the people talking. So in a way, it sort of became our verite footage of Genos, even though it's just really 3D or 2.5D. Uh, photo, uh, which is I'm, I'm I'm happy you see it that way. It's, yes. great, it's a great archive. Like it's uh, fascinating. Actually, it just takes a lot of research and a lot of luck that somebody's going to willing to go into their garage, sift through, and say, "Oh yeah, I had this one photo," and, and they don't know. But this one photo means you know I can cut away from something and have this incredible shot of Gino at his bar, and it's yeah. I I think everybody who ever takes a second to look and find. A photograph, and now I'm, I'm a little bit more careful. I, I really make sure people are thinking about that even before the interview, what they might have mm -hmm. for me. Now, what's the right now? We have a lot of content regarding food. Yes. Was this at, was this at any point a concern? Because you find you actually find an angle that is not mm -hmm. is not as exploded as every single other angle about restaur yeah. restaurants and food. No, I can't imagine that have been easy. It was real purposeful because I knew I didn't have the budget to shoot what I call food porn, you know, where you can spend two days just lighting the food and going through the food. And it really wasn't about the food. It, it's funny, it's, it is scheduled into film festivals and it's often talked about as a food documentary. And that's right. great because it's easy for people to say, oh good, I like food documentaries. But it's really a restaurant documentary. It really is a behind the scenes look at restaurants. And it's not just Charles and Gino's, I talk to restaurateurs of other famous New York landmarks and to get their input on, you know, how they're able to do what they do, how important is it to them to be an institution. We literally have uh, somebody say they don't want to even use the word institution. That makes people think that means stale and they don't want to be that. So it is a discussion about restaurants in a way that I don't necessarily think a whole film has done. They really concentrate on, often on the celebrity chef. Um, although, I mean, I was a really big fan of Spinning Plates a few years ago. I thought they did a really lovely job of intertwining three stories, three restaurants, right. and really being about the people. And so, yeah, this is, this is institutions. I mean, the, the, it's, it's, a, it's one of those words that it it's could, not very sexy <laughs> institution. No, it's, it actually gives you a whiff of uh, staleness. I, I it does. Yes. It's, and it's a hard thing to tell people, look, my movie's about wallpaper. Oh, no, no, but it's really about what makes a restaurant institution. Oh, you know, but really it's about family. Mm -hmm. Really it's about struggle. Really it's about these really incredible New York personalities. It's about social behavior too. Fully about social behavior and how decisions can be made by people you really like mm -hmm. that you disagree with and that that's not enough for you to say, well, I hate that person. It's just be like, oh, just like your father makes a decision you don't like and you don't hate him. It's like, it's important that people see these people as people who are as prone to make mistakes. And when you're an entrepreneur with your back against the wall, if you make 50% of good choices, that's a pretty, you know, that's a good amount of things getting right. It's, it's not easy, you know? And I think people, that's what they look at. They walk away from the film thinking, oh, I really like Charles and I hope he succeeds and I'm, I, I hope this doesn't, or, you know, that's, it's sort of a weird way for you to root against your hero. <laughs> that's, um, 
how many uh, how many hours of footage do you have? We shot about 32-hour, no, over 32-hour interviews, and then days of verite footage as well. So, a lot. <laughs> There's a lot, and an 87-minute movie. Which is, yeah, no, it's, it's, not a, it's not about rate, the ratio, though. It's, it really is not terrible, but we thought we were done. We had a version of this movie that we were, we, we were happy with. On our, the day of our first test screening, I, I remember on the day of our first test screening, I talked to Charles and said, hey, we're testing the movie today, and I'll let you know. And he's like, well, I, gotta, I gotta tell you something happened. It's a, the story keeps going. Yeah. And I, so he told me this thing, and I won't give it away, but no, he, told me, no, <laughs> he told me this thing that happened, and I was like, oh, okay, that changes things a little <laughs> bit. So then I, I went to the test screening. I do a talk back afterwards, and I said, you know, we're talking, and they're like, talking about the ending. I said, okay, let me just tell you, there's been an update to the story. Mm-hmm. And I just, I'm just going to tell you what it is, and you tell me whether or not that would increase or decrease your enjoyment of the movie to know. And as soon as I told, the, I mean, this audience was like, oh, no, that's got to be in there. Oh, my gosh. They were just like all over it. So uh, Joel afterwards, like, well, we're going back into production. You know, so I, t- I told the audience what had happened, this update in the story, and they just were, you have to, this has to be in the movie. And so that's the importance of testing your movie. It really is. The importance of hearing that feedback, because there was, a tendency for us to say, well, this is just where we got to in the story. Every story changes and ends. You can look at something, an environmental film, and say, this is what things were like at that time. And you don't necessarily have to, you know, you can Google and find out what happened since. But this felt like a really satisfying ending. So we went back into production and shot more footage. Uh, and it's, it's good we did. It is one of the, those amazing moments in a theater to hear people literally go, oh my God, right. <laughs> when there's this reveal of, of the change in story, so. But it's a classic problem of the documentary filmmaker to find the end, to find the end point yeah. of, the, of your story. Yeah. Because if there's not, because you're basically creating a fake end point because life continues. I mean, even when life doesn't continue, the, the murder investigation <laughs> keeps going. You know, there's the trial, there's the appeal. You know, it's uh, making a murderer is 10 hours long and people want more making a murderer. So yeah, it's, it's difficult to decide on an ending. During the last uh, Hot Dogs mm-hmm. Film Festival, I saw a film, um, I, I won't give away the name, but it was a, it was a feel-good story towards the end. And then in the, the coda, they put on, they, they add a couple of... Uh, piece of information, these two people died. Yeah. <laughs> the, the audience went downhill from there. They were devastated. Anyway, you know, it's funny. nothing as serious happened in your documentary. But. Well, I, I did have people say, is it a lot of fun to watch a failing restaurant, really? And he's, it kind it's, of is. It, it's, it kind of can be. You don't necessarily want to see somebody put out of house and home and the restaurant fail, but that isn't actually what happens either. It's things aren't always so tragic. And that, I think, is what makes this sort of a real slice of life. That, honestly, had he not called me, had I not gone down, there would never be a movie about this. And that is more interesting to me in a way than another documentary about uh, fracking or another documentary. I, you know, I sort of feel like, okay, well, there are all the tons of important stories about the environment. It's, it's hard. I'm in a documentary they, they world. Nulli- they, nulli- they nullify each other. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I, I, th- I had an idea of a documentary, of a mock documentary. It's called Not Another... <laughs> Not another fracking documentary. <laughs> documentary. Yeah, exactly. No, I hear what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I'm sorry, I got lost. We're talking about. I mean, I find it interesting that you get the the interior uh, designer and the cupcake uh, person. Mm -hmm. Who those who watch the documentary will find out why is this interesting that they talk to you. That took time. To to get people who don't want to talk to you takes time. They sort of felt like, well. I don't really want to talk about that. It wasn't the greatest moment for me. It sort of bothered me. It took meeting with Charles' designer a few times personally, mm -hmm. and really just saying to Nicole, was her name, Nicole Coda, and saying, well, it'll just be Charles' side of the story. And if the movie ends up really turning out and getting out there, all I have from you is an email where you decide to quit. It'll your side just won't be there. It gives you an, I want to give you an opportunity to say your side and then to be legitimately say to her, and I kind of agree with your side. I, I see your side at least. Uh, really she, she clearly. Makes, she makes perfect sense. She makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, she really does. She uh, states w why she did it very clearly and what her influences were initially for the restaurant to see them change and to say you can't do this is... Is she wrong? I don't think she's wrong. Um, she certainly believes she's right, and that's really important. And so, yeah, that took some talking to. And on the night of the premiere in, in New York uh, at Doc NYC, she came by herself and she sat in the back row. And she watched it afterwards, came up to me and said, Thank you. You know, that. I, I was nervous uh, about how it would be depicted just being on camera. I've never really done that before. I'm, a, I'm an interior designer. I'm not uh, a media star. And she felt that that was a very fair depiction of both sides of the story and that she's not, she can now put that to rest. I think she said specifically, I can now put that the decision to rest. Mm -hmm. So that was good. As far as the cupcake place, I don't know if they really knew what they were getting into. Though that we were talking about the cupcake place that yes. replaced Gino's in that location. Um, yeah, I mean, some people you, you know, I, I didn't know people, put it this way, when they said yes, I did not know that people were going to react to the fact that a cupcake place replaced Gino's. Mm -hmm the way they did and yeah <laughs> well i love one of your uh, interviewees uh, comments that we are not the ultra orthodox uh, customers oh. of dinos which is a which is a perfect way to depict uh, yeah. some of your other but uh then then they will react very then the same people will react very strongly against the wall the silver wallpaper oh on, yes uh, yes the andersons oh you're the, right he says about the wallpaper being up in the cupcake place, he says, it's charming. I think yes. it's a good idea. It's a, it's a nice touch. And his wife says, oh, I, I agree. And then when they talk about the wallpaper being in Pescatore, I'd rip it down. I mean, they're so vehemently against it. <laughs> it's so funny. It's very funny. It's absolutely funny. Now, well, um, I was aware of the, that you showed the film to uh, two of the owners of, former owners of uh, Genos plus uh, yeah. Charles Devine. What was their reaction? The night of the screening was the most nervous night of my life, not just because I was introducing the film, because of the social implications of everybody coming together. Mm -hmm. And the two owners of Geno's hadn't seen each other since they handed their keys in and walked away. The Charles story, I mean, they thought, I think, they thought I was making a documentary just about Geno's. You know, it was only really one question at the end of their interviews when I said to everybody, what would you think about another restaurant that you're putting up Gino's wallpaper? How would you feel? So I, I and honestly, the two owners of, G, of Gino's, Michael Mille and Salvatore Doria, 
I don't know if they'd necessarily been to a movie in their entire lives. I mean, ever. I, I, they, they grew up in the business. They, they worked on cruise ships, then they worked in restaurants, they were then bought into Geno's, and I just don't know if they really knew what a movie necessarily was. They, I showed them the trailer at one point, and they were like, that's it? I said, no, that's just the trailer. <laughs> like, they didn't even know what a trailer was. And so outside the theater, the IFC Center, I introduced Charles to the two of them, and I had already seen them shake hands, so I'm like, okay, well, nobody punched each other, that's good so far. Then Charles said, this is the gentleman with the other restaurant in the movie. They're like, okay. I'm like, okay. We all go in, and I could feel already that, that it was 75% at least of that packed, sold-out audience was, were Geno's fans, where yeah. they came for Geno's. So then I'm like, oh, are these people gonna think, oh, what is this other restaurant doing? At the end, it, incredible response to the, the film. But at the end of the film, I go up and introduce Michael Miele, big cheers. Uh, Salvatore Doria, big cheers. And then I just like that. And ladies and gentlemen, Charles Devine, the place erupted. And I was, the first time, I had the tears in my eyes. So I was like, oh my God, I thought they would be, a, I honestly didn't know if it was gonna be a boot. I mean, I really didn't know if they were gonna boot him. Uh, and he came up, the owners hugged him. They called him Charlie. They said, you're my brother now. They, they saw in him this, a, a kinship that here's another restaurateur that really cares about his, his family and being a hands-on owner and they've you know so I, I felt like I did my job that I drew the connection enough that even if they disagreed with the wallpaper being in his restaurant they at least could see the intentions were weren't nefarious mm -hmm. you know by any stretch yeah. well let's talk a bit of shop <laughs> um, so you get the you get the post-production tax credit from the Ontario uh, provincial government, right? So this was made with me financing yeah, all of production. production yes. All of production. I financed the, the every single dollar that that took to film the movie. That was uh, credit cards, line of credit. Mm -hmm. uh, but I knew if I got distribution, then I could get my federal and provincial tax credits. Um, and distribution, again, I. Blue Ice Docks is putting it out in Canada, but the way that came about is I knew Robin, who owns is part of the owners of Blue Ice Docks with uh, Neil and Stephen, and I I actually contacted him about a uh, a question when it came to fair use uh, footage in the film, and when I was talking to him about, it, he said, "Why aren't you showing me what you have? You know, I'm a distributor of Docks. Like, why aren't you showing it to me?" I said. Oh, I, well, it's still in production. He's like, well, let me come see some. So we had him come to the editing room and he looked at, uh, I think it was about 10 minutes into showing them some footage. He just turned to me and said, I'm gonna buy this off of you. We're just gonna get this out there. Let me get you, so, let me get you some money to keep going. Mm -hmm. And so everything just sort of clicked into place better than I really could have hoped. I mean, I really thought it would be closer to having a finished product, but he really believed in what I was doing early on and that really, uh, it really helped, uh, and then I knew I had the tax credits, and it gave me some more confidence to, to sort of keep going. Well, the, the, your documentary has is, uh, has a very sound structure, everything that's pescatore. Yeah. With the add-on element of Gino. Yeah. Which keeps you, which keeps you, and and I don't think you overstay any of the topics that you touch. Oh, that's good to hear. The, through the film, so you are constantly, in, while you are following the story of pescatore, you are getting new information about Gino. Yeah. I was entertained through it. Plus 87 minutes. It's, it was very important that we get the structure right. Mm -hmm. And we didn't get it right initially. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't. We, 
we had an idea of what the structure would be, but we built a spreadsheet that yellow scenes were Charles, mm -hmm. red scenes were Gino's, and then gray scenes were discussions with our pundits about institutions, people like, you know, food critic Gail Green and people from Eater New York, Greg Morbido, and then the other restaurant owners. They chime in and they talk about what we just sort of saw. So we, I mean, it was cutting and pasting in an Excel document. What if we knew this? And so what it would be is the yellow scene. What do we know from this scene? We know Charles has a family, lives above the restaurant. Okay, so when should we know that? When should we find out that he's made this decision? And we would flip these around, I mean, so many times. I mean, there was a, a somewhat of a narrative in the wallpaper isn't up, the wallpaper goes up, and then what happens afterwards. So we had a few scenes that there's, kind of order with their bone it came to Gino's we I mean we really had to build that story so that was I mean that's us working really hard and then our test screening audiences really giving their attention to the film mm -hmm. and participating in a talk back and finding those details okay. so that we could do this Excellent. now you the as uh, when I doing my research I find that you um, have dictated some uh, clinics or how we how call it, maybe classes on uh, rain dance regarding mm -hmm. how, to, um, how to approach the matter of uh, finance in your film. Yeah. Um, how did you acquire this experience? Is it just trial and error? You know, I graduated from York University Film School and I knew essentially how to make a movie. Yes. You put some lights up, aim the camera away from you, you know, although that's changing with VR now, I don't know where you hide anymore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you, I kind of knew that. I knew nothing about the business. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to be a script writer and with some knowledge of production. I would write scripts while waiting tables. And then about five years out of film school, I thought, this just, I'm not breaking through the way I wanted to. Maybe I'll go become a lawyer. And I studied for my LSATs. Mm -hmm. And then as I'm writing my LSATs, I realized, oh, I don't want to be a lawyer, I want to be a filmmaker. This is a mistake. I finished writing the LSATs. I never opened the envelope. I gave it to a girl I was dating. Never found my scores out ever. And then got back to writing. And then a few years later thought, okay, I'm going to make an independent feature. It, it seemed like it was the right time. I went and spoke to my old film school friends. Uh, I said, you direct, you shoot it, I'll write it and I'll produce it. And I made it the way I knew how, which was shooting on weekends. So it was only two days of production at a time. So it felt like we were shooting our short films like in film school again, yeah. but then they would all come together to make a feature film. And I was able to get a Baldwin brother into it by paying him like cash in a paper bag and made my first film and that, got it started. I mean, I, I didn't even know what tax credit was, but I found out I was eligible for free money from the government if I filled in some paperwork. So I, I did it and I learned on the fly. I mean, I learned to be a producer in Canada by talking to people, uh, by getting on the phone with the government agencies. And I mean, I made Sidekick my first film, again, privately funded, but ended up getting Telefilm on board for post-production to make a 35 millimeter print and help me afford to get into theaters. And it, you know, it's, there's a lot of luck. There is a lot of luck in making it this way. Mm. I always would go to film festivals and during the Q&A, someone would always ask, well, how did, you, how did you do it? And then at the end of that Q&A, I'd be like, that's perfect. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And then I go to the next film, someone asks the same question, it'd be a different story. I'd be like, no, no, that's better. I'm going to do that. It was whatever I had just heard. And I realized, well, that's how it's probably going to be for you. It's going to be your own story. It's not going to be a, a, a template that you can copy that, that Kevin Smith did or some other indie filmmaker did. You're going to have to find your own way of, of doing it. And it's, it's an up and down business. You know, I make movies 
over a million and then I make movies under 100,000. It's whatever I have available, the resources and how much I'm willing to risk and how much I can convince other people to risk at the time. Right, and right now you're uh, taking your IMDb page, your producer list is the longest one. I know. Of the <laughs> This, I is know. A, this is something you fell into, basically. I oh, did. Because producing is nobody, nobody goes to film school no. saying, I want to be a producer. You know, it's funny. I, when I was out of film school, I said I was a screenwriter. But I hadn't seen anything on screen. So I said, I'm really the writer of unpublishable literary work. <laughs> you know, it's like I write all the time. But I didn't even know if I was any good. I couldn't see it on the screen. I hadn't seen anything since film school. So to put my money behind my script was a chance for me to, you know, look at it in the screen and be like, I'm just not very good at this, or I think I know what I'm doing, or this works on this level and I can get better. I had to see what I could do, you know, and then it, it worked out. I mean, I ended up selling the remake rights to Sidekick to uh, Focus Feature, Universal Pictures Focus Features, and just watched a VHS cassette of a rough cut. You know, it really was, it made me realize, okay, so I can write, I, I can do that, and, but the producing side of it, Bringing people together and being enthusiastic about a project over a long period of time, I, I just sort of discovered it's something I can be really happy doing. And that it's, I always say, if you, you're enthusiastic about an idea, six years from now, when the movie is getting made and it's getting out there, can you be as enthusiastic or more enthusiastic? It's a long time to sit with it. it an actor is in and out, you know, in like a, a month. The person who's shooting or, you know, doing any other thing, they're in and out. But you're, you're there from the idea you doc talked over a coffee shop with a friend who said, oh, that's kind of interesting, to years, years later. So I don't know, I sort of feel like I can be that sort of enthusiastic cheerleader if I really believe in something. And over many projects now, I know I can. Okay, perfect. Now to close, are you going back to fiction now that you're done with this, or you, what's your next uh, production? I'm actually already in production another feature doc. Oh, really? And really what happened is it worked out better than you can imagine. I, uh, I had been writing family films here uh, for a, uh, a company that was interested in getting into making um, family f uh, scripted family films. And one of the ones I wrote, I'm, I'm going to have story credit on, it looks like it's going to go into production later this uh, summer, which I'm really excited about, uh, but the person who was behind making these family films came to New York to watch the premiere of the film and afterwards was, how can, how can we make a movie together? And so I pitched her an idea. We initially, we were going to do a, a documentary about uh, the Arctic oil and the fight for Arctic oil, but there's, there's been some changes in that story recently. And it seemed a little big right after this, and so I pitched another documentary I've been wanting to do about fans who fight to keep their favorite television shows on television. The grassroots democratic campaigns that these unassuming people have waged against massive companies to get them to... I'm married to one. You're married to one? Oh, fantastic. Funny, though. Really? Oh, that's... So I'm making a documentary about those people and we've been shooting now since March, and it's incredible. It's incredible. We're on the, the studio lots, we're talking to the fans, we're, it's, we're talking to other behind the scenes people. It's, it just, it's a really exciting doc and I love democracy. Mm -hmm. I really do love democracy. I'm not, even as a, a filmmaker, I don't say this, this goes this way. I make strong choices and my editor and I debate and fight about things, but we'll test things different ways and the audience wins out. You know, I really sort of feel like democracy wins the day. You can make a good product. Uh, and uh, I love watching these democratic fights for 
for these television shows because I'm a TV fan myself, a big TV fan, so it's exciting. Well, Michael, I thank you for your time. Thank you. No, this was great. Our thanks to Michael Sparaga. The missing ingredient, what's the recipe for success, opens this Friday 15 at the Hot Dogs Ted Royer Cinema. I'm Jorge Castillo. Thanks for listening to the Canadian Crew Podcast. You can reach us on Twitter at The Can Crew, on Facebook at The Canadian Crew Page, or write us to the Canadian Crew email, all one word on Gmail. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>